I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 28th, 2015. Coming up, how a chicken-like bird called the greater sage-grouse has become such a hot-button issue in the West. We'll hear from Noreen Walsh of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about the biology and the politics of the grouse, whose populations have been dangerously dropping. And author and marine activist David Helvarg discusses why we in landlocked Colorado should care about the ocean. We begin with a couple of science news headlines. The nausea and hair loss of chemo treatment may soon be a thing of the past. Right now, a patient's response to chemotherapy is difficult to predict before administering the drugs. Measuring tumor response inside the patients would solve this problem. A group of researchers from MIT have developed an implantable device that can perform this kind of drug sensitivity inside a living tumor. The device contains reservoirs that release microdoses of single agents or even drug combinations into distinct regions of the tumor. As many as 16 individual drugs or combinations can be assessed. A physician could implant the device through a minimally invasive biopsy of a small region of the tumor. The drugs are left to diffuse into the tumor for one day without overlapping each other, after which the implant and a surrounding tumor sample is removed and analyzed to to see what the therapeutic effects. In the study, the researchers implanted the device into mice that had been grafted with human prostate, breast, and melanoma tumors. These three types of cancers vary in their sensitivity to drugs. The findings confirmed the already known differences. Having a baseline profile of which drugs or drug and the optimal dose to use against a given cancer is crucial for fast, effective treatment with minimal side effects. The device developed by the MIT researchers may do just this. The study was published this month in the journal Science Translational Medicine. And for a little perspective on how far we've come in science, let's look back on some science headlines of the past. So on this day in 1930, the first motion picture of a total eclipse was captured from a plane traveling at 18,000 feet above Honey Lake in California. Also on this day in 1926, Edwin Schrodinger, one of the pioneers of quantum theory, first coined the phrase wave mechanics. It was in a letter he wrote to Albert Einstein referring to the behavior of subatomic particles. And with that, we return to the science of today. Tomorrow at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, spend 60 minutes in outer space. The planetarium will be showing highlights in the latest of space imaging and animation. The show starts at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, April 29th, and it's free. It's first come, first serve, so get there early. And this Thursday, April 30th, an event celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Hubble Space Telescope will be held at the CU Boulder Fisk Planetarium. Colorado Public Radio's Ryan Warner, host of Colorado Matters, will be joined by astronomer and Fisk director Dr. Doug Duncan. Also attending will be some Colorado scientists who have worked with the Hubble to scan the heavens and unlock the mysteries of the universe. The event starts at 6.30 Thursday night and is free. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. 
If you haven't witnessed one of the most spectacular rites of spring, you should check it out. It's the mating ritual of the greater sage-grouse, a chicken-like bird with a long tail with spiky tail feathers. The males strut their stuff like no other males on earth, dare I suggest. The greater sage-grouse's range spans part of Colorado and several other western states. But that sagebrush-dominated habitat has been chopped up and otherwise degraded over the years, causing the grouse populations to plunge. So much so that the bird awaits a milestone decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to list it as endangered or not. Noreen Walsh is someone who knows as much as anyone about the greater sage-grouse and why it's such a hot-button issue in the West. She's a wildlife biologist and director of the Fish and Wildlife Service's Mountain Prairie Region, which includes Colorado. Walsh leads the service's role in a massive conservation initiative focused on the greater sage-grouse and its habitat. From her Lakewood, Colorado office, she joins us now. Noreen, welcome to How on Earth. Good morning, Susan, and thanks for having me on the show. Sure. So it's been a very eventful year, actually several years, I guess, for the greater sage-grouse. Maybe for those who haven't seen it, and I had the great fortune to see one, to see a bunch of them recently, describe this bird and its relationship with other grouse. There are several different grouse species, but what, what's so special about this bird? Sure. The greater sage-grouse is actually the largest grouse species in North America. It exists over about 165 million acres, ranging across 11 western states, and as its name suggests, it really relies on sagebrush. The species has lost about somewhere around 56% of its historical range, and the best estimates we have suggest that there's between 200,000 and 500,000 of these birds left. Wait, so 200,000 to 500,000, that's about what, a, just a tiny fraction of what was, whatever the peak was? Yeah, the um, early estimates of population size are just completely anecdotal. So we don't have a firm estimate of what historical levels were, but it's clear that this is a fraction. Ha- having lost half of their habitat, what we have now is a fraction of what was here historically. Boy, and so we're right in the middle of mating season now. And I will say I've never seen anything like this mating so-called dance of the greater sage-grouse. What is it they're doing, and what's so unusual about these males and the females they're courting? Sure. I'm so glad you got a chance to see it because I think it really is a spectacular natural wonder. In the spring, usually in April, the males will start to congregate on open, relatively flat areas within sagebrush country, usually areas with bare soil or very short grass. And this is when they put on a show to attract the females for mating. So these flat areas are called leks, and the birds usually return to the same ones year after year. The males are pretty spectacular. They will spread their wide tail feathers out in a fan, puff up that uh, snowy white chest, and then inflate bright yellow air sacs. And then they kind of slowly strut around, uh, making a booming noise, uh, trying to attract females for mating. Okay, we wanted to have a little audio on the show, but didn't quite get to it. Can you, I know you've heard many, 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 like what, it's sort of a popping weird sound. Can, can you give us a little hint? I'm not sure I can imitate it, but it's sort of a low, <laughs> popping, booming sound that you would hear in the background while you're watching them do the displays. Yeah, it is spectacular. And um, so, it, as you have said, it's one of the most studied birds, at least in the in the U.S. What are some of the more significant findings about this bird of, of recent, and and how it's become such a, a critical species? Sure. 
it's certainly well studied, but there's definitely more that we need to understand. Many research studies will point to the fact that this species relies on large landscapes and that it's very sensitive to the habitat being broken up or fragmented into smaller pieces, but exactly how large isn't completely clear, and that may vary across the range. They also, key research findings will show us that they avoid disturbance. They avoid infrastructure around energy development. They avoid areas that have tall structures because those provide a perch for uh, avian predators like eagles. Like telephone poles, certainly what, wind turbines? Exactly. Telephone poles, transmission lines, yep. And they also avoid areas where um, juniper or pinion uh, start to invade into sagebrush. They, they avoid areas where those trees start to encroach on sagebrush habitat. And by avoiding, I mean, does it make them more stressed out and weaken their immune system and less able to do other things? Does it lower their fertility rate or increase their mortality rate? What, what happens in this avoidance? These, these kinds of disturbances or structures that I'm talking about really mean that the bird is less likely to occupy that habitat, so they just don't use it anymore. So do they find another home? or it, Because these are ones that keep coming back to the same place every year, right? They usually come back to those same lecking areas in the spring for the breeding behavior. But yes, when these areas are disturbed or have this kind of infrastructure, birds are then crowded into smaller areas of habitat. Let me just describe a little bit more this habitat. I know it spans 11 states in the West, right? Mm-hmm. And largely in sagebrush dominated, but also pinion, juniper, other grasses. They- yeah, the birds occupy sagebrush rangelands across the West, and they rely on that sagebrush for food, for cover, for nesting. So they're really restricted to areas where we have healthy sagebrush. Well, and one thing that really struck me on this recent tour of the sagebrush and sage-grouse country that I had with other some other journalists was someone from Audubon who said, you know, I'd take oil and gas development over wind farms any day when it comes to, <coughs> excuse me, habitat for the sage grouse, how is it? I mean, when we looked at some oil and gas development in the Jonah Field near Pinedale, Wyoming, it just looked like a massive patchwork of well pads, aside from, from the noise, but some, some serious degradation of, of the habitat. But how, how would you compare them? Certainly both types of development, if not done properly and with careful attention to where those facilities are sited, can have very negative impacts on sage grouse. But for all kinds of energy development, what's really most important are those first decisions about where the development is going to be located. And so we really recommend that most attention is paid to trying to place that kind of development outside of the most important core areas for sage grouse. Right. So it seems like you at Fish and Wildlife Service and other agencies and so many different groups are working overtime, to say the least. In a sense, it seems like to keep the bird from getting listed as endangered, or at least to preserve the habitat enough to not warrant listing. What's going on right now, and how critical are things? Sure. We um, made a finding back in 2010 that listing was warranted. And actually, I think that was a catalyst that has spurred what is really in uh, a time of epic collaboration that we are seeing between many, many partners to put in place conservation efforts that would hopefully make federal listing of the bird unnecessary. 
also from federal agencies like the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service, who together control about 60% of this bird's habitat, to state agencies, to private landowners like ranchers and non-governmental organizations. People have come together to really understand what threats are acting upon this bird and pushing its trend in the wrong direction. What can we do about those threats? And let's put those actions and those decisions on the ground in the hopes that a listing under the federal ESA would not be necessary. And that's our objective as well. Anytime we can achieve conservation without needing a federal listing, I'm all for it. And what's actually what's wrong with the listing? Wouldn't that kick into gear really tight restrictions that would further ensure the preservation? One of the things we've been working on is the degree to which conservation mechanisms, actions, and restrictions can be put in place without the federal government having to do it. So the Bureau of Land Management has been working for a couple years on a massive effort to overhaul their uh, resource management plans that basically govern how they manage the land under their administration. It's going to be a really huge piece of the puzzle that will let us understand whether protections are in place for the species and its habitat that might mean uh, additional protections under the ESA are unnecessary. Boy, and so what's in it, I mean, economically and otherwise, for a cattle rancher, for instance, who maybe historically likes the bird but likes the cattle and the money from the cattle a heck of a lot more and they're not necessarily compatible, right? Um, they can be very, very compatible. Um, Well-managed cattle grazing and greater sage-grouse habitat can be very compatible. There's a rancher out of Harney County, Oregon, I think his name is Tom Sharp, who coined a phrase uh, earlier this year, maybe last year, what's good for the bird is good for the herd. And so we know that well-managed um, Healthy and well-managed sagebrush systems can help put more weight on cows. At the same time, they can produce more greater sage grouse. So it's all in how you manage areas that are grazed, but we, we believe that the science shows us that well-managed grazing is completely compatible with sage grouse production. And, and I would have to say in the ranchers that we deal with, that we've entered into partnerships with, we have a lot in common because there's really a focused, um, true stewardship perspective and a concern about legacy. You know, what's this land going to look like in the future? What's going to be there for children and grandchildren? What's gonna, are we going to have the full complement of species that people grew up enjoying seeing on the land? And together with the fact that well-managed grazing is compatible with this, we have a lot in common to work with with these ranchers. And then the ranchers are actually getting compensated in a sense for doing good, right? It's not just that you're hoping they will all do this out of goodwill and love. Well, there's a couple ways that ranchers could be, as you say, compensated. The Natural Resource Conservation Service has a program called the Sage Grouse Initiative, which is really focused on wildlife conservation through sustainable ranching. And through that program, many ranchers have entered into agreements um, that may involve incentive payments. Another way that ranchers can be rewarded for this good stewardship is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can, and can enter into agreements with ranchers who are managing their property in a way that facilitates healthy sage-grouse populations, and they get assurances from us that if, in fact, the bird is ever listed under the Endangered Species Act, they won't be required to do any more than they've already agreed to. Well, thank you so much for this. So one more thing, just are you hopeful that it will avoid listing 
when you need to make this decision in December, or sorry, in September, right? Yeah, we have to make a decision by the end of September as to whether or not listing is still warranted. And I have a good sense of cautious optimism that is really spurred on by the fact that so many people have come together to address this problem. I think it's a really good example of what can happen when people focus on goals that they have in common. It's the right thing to do, not just for sage grouse, but for the people who live and work on the land, 350 other wildlife species that depend on sagebrush country, and we have to keep up the momentum over the next several months. Well, good luck with it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Susan. That was Noreen Walsh, director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Mountain Prairie Region. So for more information on the sage-grouse on all aspects, you can go to sagegrouseinitiative.com, and we'll post more links on our website later. You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. So now we move from land to sea. My next guest is David Helvarg, a journalist and author of several books focusing on the ocean, its magnificence, and its imperiled creatures, and why we in landlocked Colorado depend on and affect the oceans that our watersheds flow into. Helvarg, who li- lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, is founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Blue Frontier Campaign. He'll be speaking in Boulder this Thursday, April 30th, at an event put on by a related organization called Colorado Ocean Coalition. Helvarg's latest book, out now in paperback, is Saved by the Sea, Hope, Heartbreak, and Wonder in the Blue World. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. Why, so, um, yeah, now I'll, I'll be speaking at Ocean First Divers there in Boulder, and it is the first time I, I went there, I was fairly amazed to, uh, you know, I, I went with the founder of uh, Colorado Ocean Coalitions, uh, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, and we got stuck behind a van with a llama in it, and <laughs> then uh, got there, and there were 50 divers waiting to hear me speak uh, 5,000 feet above sea level. Okay, were the llamas getting certified? It could be Boulder. Yeah, I, I think they took a, a left where we took a right. <laughs> So I know you'll be here in a couple days, but just a a teaser for some. So what is it about your latest book, which is kind of part memoir and part um, sort of activist, let's let's do more for the seas, different from your, you have a previous book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, very specific things we can do. Yeah, yeah, this one's more sort of traumas me and the ocean have shared over the last half century. And, um, you know, unlike some of my other books. Uh, yesterday I was speaking at, uh, Colorado, at uh, California State University in Monterey Bay about how California is a model for healthy oceans. But um, I also made the point then, oh, every state's a coastal state. Uh, I mean, you you know take a breath and try and think what it is about the ocean that impacts Colorado. And uh, oh, yeah, that breath. You know, we, we say the rainforest, the lungs of the world, but 50% of our oxygen comes from the photosynthesis of marine algae. And, of course, the ocean's a driver of weather and climate. So, the, you know, it evaporates off the ocean, forms clouds, and all the rain we need to grow our crops and our, our foodstuffs and our pasture lands comes down in that cycle, that circulation of water that starts with, with the ocean, the crucible of, of life on our planet. 
Boy, that's really interesting. I mean, well put that every state is a coastal state when you think of that. And then, and then our outflow to the ocean through the watersheds, both on the east and west side of the Continental Divide. Everything follows gravity. And, and so, you know, if you farm right, then you produce food without waste. If you do like they do in the Midwest, put 140 pounds of synthetic fertilizer per acre of corn or soy... Uh, that's too much, and the surplus follows gravity down the streams and the rivers until it hits the Mississippi, and every spring you have this second crop of algae in the in the Gulf, which then sinks and, and uh, as it does so, is eat, eaten by microbes or suck the dissolved oxygen out of the water. You create these great dead zones in our coastal seas. So there's, there's actually been a program in the last few years of, of taking upstream farmers, fishermen from Louisiana, visiting the farmers and the farmers going out, uh, with the shrimpers on the Gulf of Mexico to see this dead zone and 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 just become more conscious, so they they reduce their use of of uh, fertilizers and pesticides, and in reducing that that surplus, they also save themselves money and and uh, there's less nutrient runoff, which means less pollution downstream. Boy, so for those who <clears throat> like us are living in these landlocked states, what are you know two or three things? I know you can give a little teaser for your your book, Fifty Ways to Save the Ocean, but but really specific things people can do to help preserve the health of the ocean. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, aside from when you do visit the ocean and and you know smart ways to visit the beach and go boating and diving, but but locally at home, I mean, one is important thing is just the, you know, encouraging the transition to cleaner fuels off of coal and oil, other fossil fuels, which at this point are raising sea levels, melting glaciers, changing the basic chemistry of the ocean. So certainly campaigning for for clean energy, um, using less plastic in your day-to-day life, because that also tends to follow gravity. 70 to 80 percent of the plastic in the ocean is a pulse off the land and, um, you know, right now we're producing 200 million metric tons of plastic per year. And, wow. yeah, I got nothing against, you know, prosthetic legs and bathtub liners. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, half that plastic, 100 million tons, is single-use disposable plastic. And that's what we have to get beyond. And um, a, a third uh, idea, I, I could provide actually many more than the third idea for anyone who comes and visits uh, us on Thursday. Well, great. Thank you. No, we've got <clears throat> many more many more things to discuss on this point, but you can catch him Thursday. So thanks so much for coming on the show. I can appreciate it, Susan. That was David Helvarg, Executive Director of the Blue Frontier Campaign. And like we said, he'll be speaking in Boulder this Thursday at a monthly Blue Drinks gathering put on by the Colorado Ocean Coalition. It'll run from 6.30 to 8.30 at the dive shop Ocean First Divers. For more info, go to coloradoocean.org and click on Events. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm, um, I'm our executive producer for this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music from The Bad Plus. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran.